Hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable Brown Girl podcast. This show exists to provide representation for women of color in the environmental space, to highlight their stories, and to educate the masses about how to be more eco-friendly every day. From gardening to thrifting, minimalism to veganism, sustainable business owners to influencers, environmentalists to activists, we are all on a journey to taking better care of our bodies and our planet. I'm your host, Ariel Green. For decades, China and other Asian countries have been the main hub of textile production. But now eyes are shifting towards Africa. With major potential for growth, African development is on the rise. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the benefits of manufacturing in Africa and how more companies can get involved. But before we get too deep into that, I want to remind you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy to do on any Apple device. Just search for Sustainable Brown Girl Podcast and be sure to follow if you aren't already. Then scroll down to the review area and I'm sure you want to leave a five-star review, so go ahead and do it. It really helps us with getting more people to discover the show. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and I will feature it in an upcoming episode. If you're not already, be sure to follow Sustainable Brown Girl on Instagram and use the hashtag Sustainable Brown Girl to be featured on the page. I love seeing what everyone's up to, their sustainable swaps, their outfit inspo. So I love sharing that on Instagram. Also, if you have a few dollars to spare, please consider becoming a Sustainable Brown Girl patron on Patreon. It really helps to keep the show going on a consistent basis, and you'll get access to some exclusive content. A link to the Patreon page is in the show notes. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Today's featured Sustainable Brown Girl is Elise Smith, founder of Oeco Studios an ethical eco-video production company that works with Earth Forward brands. Elise is also the owner of Winnie's Bakery. She's a food writer, recipe developer, and set stylist. Today, we're going to be talking about how we can be more sustainable when it comes to shopping for food and cooking. So thank you so much for joining us today, Elise. Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us about your background and how you became interested in sustainability. Okay, so my background, as you previously mentioned so beautifully, by the way, what an introduction, thank you. Um, My background is in the culinary world. I am a pastry chef, baker, and I have run, uh, owned and operated Winnie's Bakery since 2012. I come from a long line of cooks, of chefs. My maternal grandmother actually owned her own bakery, Jeannie's in PG County, because I'm located in Maryland. And I grew up in a kitchen. I just, I love being in a kitchen. Um, I love, you know, start to finish. I love planting seedlings. I like seeing the relaxed and satiated faces of full bellies. And it's always just such a joy to kind of see the full circle of people 
seeing the food come out and, you know, especially since my forte is the end result, the dessert Mm. and just placing it before them. So with all of that said, I then kind of evolved into this more, I guess, ecological pursuit as I ran my business, Mm -hmm. as things opened up and expanded for me, I started, as you also mentioned, I started writing for a couple of different magazines because as a freelancer and I was able to kind of get an inside glimpse of how everything started. Mm -hmm. And I saw so much waste around me. And I then checked myself and saw how much waste was being produced in my bakery. Mm-hmm. And it just started with small personal changes. Um, so, you know, just switching from like whenever used plastic, but just using 100% recycled um, uh, packaging and right. not using unnecessary single use plastics. Um, you know, taking my own, like using glass jars and things like that, having eco wraps, um, you know, uh, having one day, I even worked out that whenever I would do for emissions, whenever I would do my deliveries to the coffee shops, we had one day we did deliveries one day. That's Mm. it. Unless it was a special event. We didn't do staggered days at the end of it. If we could not align the drop-off, then we weren't right to work together. Okay. Um, obviously there are small concessions that you can be made because you have to be considerate of people's uh, circumstances, but um, yeah, it was a full circle effort and it's been many years of learning and I get it wrong all the time, but <laughs> it's been a good journey. Yeah. Progress over perfection. Um, oh, I like that. <laughs> so I, I love that you're not just focused on the food waste, that you're also looking at emissions and like conserving mm-hmm. gas and energy. Like that's mm-hmm. really important. So um, you mentioned that you saw the amount of food waste. Was there one thing in particular where you were like, oh my gosh, like this is not good. I snapped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was working on a shoot and we made this amazing basil lemon blueberry compote to go on top of mm. coconut ice cream. Oh, so oh. it's wonderful vegan recipe. And I made the compote and the, the ice cream and we had reshot it because we weren't using, um, there are tips and tricks and all sorts of behind the scenes stuff with food styling that I mm-hmm. could tell you that would probably gross you out beyond measure. Oh, no. used a lot. Ooh. Um, <laughs> but we were actually using live food. Um, and by the second time I saw them toss it to get a reshot, I was just, I snapped. Mm-hmm. It could have been eaten. There, yeah. It was, it was a table layout too. So no one was eating it. We were inside. So it wasn't open to air and it had not been placed. I mean, it's ice cream. So it hadn't been down for more than 15 minutes. Right. It could have been eaten and they tossed it. And I was just wow. like, I, I can't be a part of this yeah. anymore. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, even now when I, I have the opportunity to be on sets, I, I take my food back. Obviously there are certain food safety regulations that you need to be cognizant of. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it can be salvaged, saved, reused, eaten, <laughs> All of those things will have been um, considered and followed up on, on my set. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was my snapping. 
Yeah, I can, point. I can totally see that. It sounds so good. So I can't imagine just watching it be thrown away. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> By the third time, I think I had actually irked the photographer. I was like, wait, why are we resetting? Right. What happened? Yeah. And I was just like, oh, well, we had some, um, what did she say? Oh, the blueberries looked washed out because we had some greens and greens and blues when trying to capture them. They can often clash depending on your back your background okay and I was just like oh my goodness okay wow. right okay I'm just gonna stand in the corner that's crazy <laughs> yeah so tell us about your brand Oeco Studios and also a little about a little bit about Winnie's Bakery like what as mm -hmm. far as like Oe um Oeco Studios what mm -hmm. exactly do you do so I am the founder and owner of Oeco Studios. We are, as you mentioned, an ethical production company. We work with companies across the nation and actually come this fall internationally. Wow. Uh, we have congrats. a client in Australia now. Thank you. Um, we work with companies like Zip Top Containers, which is 100% platinum grade silicone. We work with Beeswrap and they have organic, Vermont sourced beeswax, jojoba oil, and cotton reusable wrappers. Wow. We work with companies like Ecopea, which has a hundred percent biodegradable bamboo based diaper, which is hypoallergenic for sensitive skin. Um, it's, it's been an honor to work with these brands and to create digital content for them. Everything from small promotional bits that are like no greater than three to five seconds, all the way up to full commercials. Um, which are 45 seconds, which doesn't sound like much, but when you see the hours that are cut down kind mm -hmm. of into it, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're watching TV, you don't have usually a spot greater than about like 15 to 20 seconds on your TV. So right. it's, it's been really wonderful to create sustainable content for these companies. Um, we do an ecological breakdown for them. So what ingredients or materials and tools were sourced in the producing of their promotional videos or their um, commercials. Um, and we just kind of give them that transparency that makes them feel that we mirror their same mission, their ethos right. and right. their consideration for the earth and the impact that they and that we have on it. Um, and then for Winnie's, mm -hmm. I do very intentional work in the kitchen it's a lot of upcycling. Um, okay. <laughs> any, any old jar has, there's so many countless jars that have been, you know, soaked and cleaned, labels taken off. And they are now, you know, my wheat and my yeast and my sugar containers and things of that nature using local fresh ingredients, which I think we'll probably touch on a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just being very intentional. It's just taking the time to consider, is this necessary? If so, what will be the impact? And then what can I do to lessen its impact? Or at the very least, set some sort of balance after doing it. Right. Um, I think balance is the thing that I always consider. Um, because it's like you said, um, progress over perfection. I will never be... 100% right on it. And right. I can't imagine that any of these companies will be either, but right. just trying to be aware that there is lives going on 
My dad used to tell me that when I was little, there are lives going on mm-hmm. around your life and right. the life and, you know, quite honestly, the fragility of the earth is something that I'm constantly thinking about. Um, you know, it sustains billions and billions of people. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> billions and billions of people can wreak havoc on it. And it just tears my heart up. So I yeah. do things that I can just small measured, you know, intentional actions. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, it's been fantastic. You had the, uh, the opportunity to speak with Monique of Butter and Lie. Yeah. We get to work with her. companies. She's fabulous. We get to work with companies who are so, so aware of how they can make small changes that make, you know, small impacts that then create a ripple of a big impact. I mean, the woman even uses ecologically sound uh, packaging stickers. Right? That's so awesome. It's like so many different (laughs) things to consider when you have a business. And Mm -hmm. especially when you're trying to be sustainable, there's just like so many little things that the consumer doesn't really think about. And, um, you know, just seeing brands like that, um, really making an effort to be as sustainable as they can is really inspiring. So what have you learned from working with these sustainable food brands? Like, have you, you know, like gotten some new tricks and techniques for when you're cooking or storing food? I have. So Bees Wrap, I will definitely say, is an absolute favorite. I first bought Bees Wrap. I'm 31 now. When I was 17 from my local William Sonoma. Wow. William before Sonoma it was, was my splurge. Before it was popular. <laughs> um, it was my splurge, you know, to myself. I had just graduated high school and I did not know that I was going to go on to become a professional cook. Uh-huh. Um, I went to community college and then I went to Gallaudet University for ASL interpreting. Oh, wow. But I worked in food. Oh, thank you. I worked in food and I just absolutely loved going in Williams-Sonoma and window shopping. And one day I stumbled across these wrap and I was like, what is that? And the packaging alone intrigued me because it was just a cardboard box amidst some of the grandest wrapping I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's Williams-Sonoma. And I took it home and it sat on my shelf just looking pretty for probably three months, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> and then... One day I needed to wrap the top of this cobbler I had made and I did not, God, the shame. I did not have plastic wrap and I hated foil because it never felt like it was a glass platter and it never felt like it grasped right. Yeah. And I saw the wrap staring at me and I was like, I guess I should put it to use. Fantastic. It was so fantastic. The way that it anchored over my dish was so perfect because the warmth of your hands helps with um how kind of malleable and sticky it is Mm -hmm. um but it doesn't leave any kind of residue in your hands I don't know if you've had the opportunity to ever use it but I really loved it and from there on anytime I can't find the top or a lid to something I use it I throw produce into them um I just did a uh I, I needed to bake something for the organization, No Kid Hungry, and I had to make two dozen bread loaves. Wow. Out comes the, <laughs> out comes the bread wrap roll from Bees Wrap, and we're 
you know, me and my workers, we're making a precision line. You're cutting, you're laying, you're wrapping. I'm putting into the box and packaging. And it was so seamless and so perfect. And it keeps things so fresh. That's mm-hmm. definitely one of like my staples. Um, let's see, what else do I really go to when I'm in the kitchen? I mentioned before my jars. I love my jars. I have, yeah. I have everything because I make my own, uh, like I make my own rose water and I make my own uh, vanilla and like lavender syrup and things of that nature. I have miniature ketchup bottles. I have maple syrup, honey bottles. Um, what else have I kept? I've kept, I've kept some pretty weird ones. Um, <laughs> and they're just stocked. It honestly kind of looks like an old time apothecary in my, my bakery pantry. Wow. Um, just cause I mean, why ever toss it? My basil is mm-hmm. currently in a, a San Marzano tin. <laughs> which is which is not the best actually <laughs> it can get warm but it's what I had on hand because yeah. I had already made up my mind for the jars and it's just it's wonderful yeah it really is wonderful when you see one thing get a second life um exactly. so those are kind of some of my staples I guess you could say um yeah, yeah. Re- reusing stuff is one of you know how we say reduce, reuse, recycle, reducing Mm -hmm. and reusing are so important. So Mm -hmm. I love that you're reusing all of that. Now, do you also, I guess you're a baker, so you do buy things in bulk, like you buy like Mm -hmm. large packages of um, flour and whatnot. So I do. Um, Currently, I'm only doing special orders because this has absolutely nothing to do with being sustainable, but um, I have Uh, a cancer called MDS. And so I'm not taking on the large orders, which is kind of how the birth of the Oeco came. Um, Mm -hmm. But previously, you can actually go to bulk stores. And yes, you may have to put an order like with moms, we have my organic market, Mm -hmm. you might have to put in an order and wait, but you can do large bulk items. I got a lot of my nuts and seeds from there, grains, wheat flour. Um, you really can kind of do anything. You have to be crafty. Mm-hmm. Um, some things will be more expensive. That is just the nature of how America or quite honestly, the world's consumerism is built. Right. It makes me feel better mm-hmm. than thinking about, you know, guilt's a very wasted emotion, but I, I do say that if you get a twinge of it, it's probably because you need to check yourself. And <laughs> yeah. the guilt that I used to get from you know, the things that I would buy, it just would eat me up. And I was like, your body's trying to tell you that you need to do something different. Your mind right. is, is eating away at that because it knows there's another option, but you're choosing this one over here. Mm. And, um, that's when I got to learn about bulk stores. <laughs> They're fantastic. You yeah. can get them online, especially with, you know, how times are now. Um, you can just go, you can literally put into Google bulk food, and you can get everything that you need. Um, right. And it's, it's again, not perfect progress over perfection. There's still the emissions of the travel for it to get to you and things of that nature, but it's better than an unnecessary plastic bag sitting in a landfill. Exactly. Yeah. So and that's a good balance. Point. Right. It's a good point <laughs> to bring up that there are bulk shops online because I always, you know, like I live in the suburbs and it's like, there's no mm-hmm. bulk stores near me. 
but it is a good reminder that you can buy a lot of things online in bulk. So, oh, absolutely. Do you have any other tips when it comes to shopping for food, you know, making more sustainable choices? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's all the ones that we already know, but we maybe don't take the time to consider buying seasonally, buying locally, and also buying in bulk as well. And like taking the time to consider, well, this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to create. And I'm a family of three and my kids like to eat this, this, and this. They don't seem to get tired of it. If you're able to buy in bulk and you're able to kind of plan it out a little bit, it's better than you throwing away things. Oh, excuse me. I forgot the one thing and like freezing it. It's Mm -hmm. better than you letting it sit in your fridge and waste. It's better than you driving out to the store every night to pick it up. It's better than you trying to buy things that are out of season, which throw off the natural course of our, um, uh, there's always an ecological impact when you uh, unnaturally grow things. Agriculture has, it has a natural flow and rhythm. And when we do things that disturb that, it's, it's not good. There's going to be a cost. And so when I tell people, just Google what's in season. Right. You're going to be so surprised with the long list of things that you probably already eat. Um, Another way or, to like, know how things are in season, I think, is when you go to the grocery store and something's on sale. Like when zucchini is on sale, it's in season. <laughs> yep, because they have a surplus of it. Exactly. Uh-huh. That's a great tip. Um, yes. And also, I've had people tell me, you know, I find that my berries kind of just taste like water not berry season right or they say my apples kind of have like this weird zing back it's not that season like honey crispy yeah. around not a thing no not a thing <laughs> right Mo- most apples like year round not a thing mm-hmm. um but you know you go into an american food market and uh supermarket and you would never know Mm-hmm. unless of course you have that tip like you, <laughs> you know, when you see, there's a reason that we don't see corn, like sweet corn in particular, that's what right. really clues people like sweet corn during certain seasons. It's because mm-hmm. it only grows during this time. And then there's the reason they put out that big bend very much like you just said, because they have a surplus. It is the time in which it is supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, so just buying what would naturally be here if we didn't interfere is, right. is definitely something to consider. Buying locally, you're helping the, um, the economical ecosystem of your community when you do that. One, two, if you're thinking about emissions and things of that nature, more than likely there's a farmer's market that you could go and buy everything you need for the week or in the next two weeks from. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, lastly, Food waste is the biggest thing yes. for me. Yeah, same. I am the queen of leftovers now. Yeah. It's taken a good six years. I always enjoyed leftovers, but I'd be like, eh, but I can't do anything with this. Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. I am the queen of a stir fry, of a fried rice, of a casserole. Mm-hmm. I really, really am. Soup. I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Soups. Yes. Throw it in that pot. Let it get together become Uh friends and it's going to be so good just kind of figuring out how to lower your waste 
And also yeah. the final thing, even though I didn't mention it in the beginning, I compost. Oh, nice. How do you, I'm very, so we have, we have a roller in the back and we, we do that, but I use, we have this cute little one we got off of Amazon because my mother found it and she mm -hmm. loves it. And she's like, guess what I put in my kitchen? I was like, what? And then she showed me it was beautiful. But um, when COVID hit, my family all came back together, mm -hmm. especially with my diagnosis. So there's eight of us in this home. Wow. Yeah. We're very yes. fortunate that there's enough space that we're not on top of each other, but it's, it's still a lot of mouths. A lot of people are eating. So we use coffee cans, Cafe okay. Bustelo, Cafe Bustelo. We use aluminum coffee cans. We put it in there and we take it out every two days. We put it in the rotator and we take our old, you know, has to be un, uh, unbleached and naturally sourced, but like our egg cartons, crumble those up. Yep. Throw that in there. Mm -hmm. We have compostable bags, throw those in there. That's so awesome. It's, it's been really wonderful kind of learning um, what is going to work. And with my family, it's nice to be able to have all of us come together and collectively work and the girls get involved and it's been really nice. And they're like, Lola, I have a strawberry top and they'll take their strawberry top and they'll put it in the little can and it's perfect. And every two days we go outside. All right. So, yeah. Yes. Thank you so much, Elise, for coming to join us today. Um, last question, mm -hmm. what does it mean to you to be a sustainable brown girl? Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, to be a sustainable brown girl to me means living in the truth of how I want to leave the earth. And it's going to be very similar, um, or how I should live on the earth once I leave the earth. And it's very similar to the way my ancestors did. You know, I come from farmers, growers, sharecroppers, and, you know, my very own grandfather just passed away last year, was a hundred years old. And wow. he gardened up until four months before his passing <gasps> in the city amazing. of Baltimore. My grandfather had his backyard and he had a plot out in Catonsville and he <laughs> He used to make jokes that, um, you know, this is kind of morbid, but it makes me think of my relationship with him. He kept having my siblings and my cousins come out and help him. And we are like, why do we have to do this, this, that, and the other? And they're like, honest, he's like, honestly, my partners keep dying on me. And I was like, what? <laughs> and my dad heard him say that once. He's like, dad, don't say that. And he's like, no, it's true. And he asked about his partner. I think his name was Mr. Allen. And he asked, and uh, my dad's like, well, why don't you ask one of the, the guys down at the church? And he's just like, those young men, he's like, dad, he's not young. He's 83. And then you remember, you know, your, yeah. your dad's 98, 99 years old. And, you know, he's, he's, he's a seasoned man. And right. so I learned to have that appreciation. He would tell me about growing up on a farm and, how they grew everything. I mean, watermelons, lemon trees, um, they grew herbs. Um, I mean, a hundred years old. So truly the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, they had to rely on themselves. And although I do not covet that existence, exactly everything that he learned being passed on to us is, 
it's not lost on me. And so I, I try to live intentionally very similar in a fashion to my grandfather and the ancestors that came before me. Um, that's what it means to me to be a sustainable brown girl, just doing my best um, mm-hmm. to be intentional in my life and leaving the earth just a teeny bit better than when I arrived. Absolutely. Well, I definitely think that you're doing that. And thank, thank you for sharing your story with us. And please tell everyone where they can find you online. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be able to sit here and chat with you. Uh, interruptions and <laughs> everything. Um, you can find me on Instagram at OECO Studios or Winnie's Bakery, which is W I N N I E S Bakery. And um, yeah, we love to follow back and su- support the people who support us. So thank you so much. Thank you, Elise. And everyone, please go follow her on Instagram and keep up with everything that she's doing. And thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been my absolute pleasure. Our next featured sustainable brown girl is Rachel Larrier, a Ghanaian woman based in Brooklyn, New York. Rachel is the founder of Kelewele, a lifestyle and food brand focused on plantain-based eats. Rachel is a plantain lover embarking on a journey at the intersection of food, culture, and community. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yes. So before we even get into it, I want to address the age-old debate of how do you pronounce plantain? (laughs) Is it plantain or plantain? (laughs) It is, and let the record reflect for the last time, plantain. (laughs) but you know as soon as I say that though it really becomes like a geographic breakdown because if you're in the Caribbean you're likely saying plantain Um, but I'm West African uh, specifically from Ghana and we say plantain so depending on where you are you'll get a pass but I will always say that the proper pronunciation is plantain (laughs) I like it that's how I've always pronounced it but then I saw a post on Instagram like last week and people were you know debating it and they were very Mm -hmm. matter of fact saying that it's plantain so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will take your word for it because that's the way (laughs) I've been saying it so we will say plantain throughout this interview sorry if people have a problem with it (laughs) (laughs) Right. They'll have to do. (laughs) Yes. So tell us, take us back to the beginning. Where or how did Kelewele uh, come about, come to be? Yeah. So for me, and I always kind of talk about it as my plantain love story, which has been my lifetime in the making. Um, You know, it started with culture. Like I mentioned, I'm from West Africa. My family, both of my parents were born and raised in Ghana. And while I was born in the States, um, have always been very connected to my roots and where my family is from. And something that my mom would always do really to kind of, especially being a migrant to this country as a way to stay connected was to always prepare, you know, Ghanaian dishes, listen to Ghanaian music, you know, dress everything to really stay rooted in home and family. And so I grew up in a very Ghanaian home in America. um, And that included 
all of the plantain dishes and Kelowale specifically uh, was a plantain and is a plantain street food. Um, and it was the first plantain dish I ever had that my mom made me. And it's basically just plantains that are diced up. They're marinated in spices like ginger, some cayenne. Um, it's very simple street food and you fry it up to golden perfection. And it's usually accompanied with uh, groundnuts or peanuts and it's delicious. And I just loved it. And I have a sweet tooth. And so when you have that perfect combination of the like sweet plantain with the spices, it's just really unbelievable. And so anyway, fell in love with plantains at that point. And then through different inflection points in my life, plantains just had increased significance. And so it started with that cultural piece that was very personal and specific. But then, um, you know, I went on to college and I was at NYU undergrad on a serious budget and plantains became like an affordable, accessible um, food ingredient that I would just buy all the time as I was like cooking and preparing meals for myself. Um, and at that time, I also transitioned into a vegan diet. And so again, plantains became this meat and dairy substitute that I could use to, again, make just like creative dishes. And that's really when I started creating new things, getting just excited about how I can use plantains in new ways than I had engaged with them before, even the way my mom prepared them. And then fast forward a few years um, to when I started my grad studies in 2017 as a trained anthropologist and um, African-Americanist scholar, I started thinking a lot about how culture informs how we understand ourselves in relation to community and all the different ways culture is produced. And one of those ways is, in, is through food and different food ways. And so I had this light bulb moment of thinking how plantains can be a kind of lens into thinking about culture. And what I loved was that I can be from West Africa, the next person from Latin America, the next person somewhere from the Caribbean, but we're all eating plantains. It became this kind of globally recognized diasporic food that was more than just food. It was a way of thinking about home and family and belonging and culture in a very real material way. And so I love that. And so take all of those different inflection points together, I thought I would love to create a brand that really prioritizes health, accessibility, that's predicated on something that's familiar, but still innovative. Yeah. And so that's how I kind of got going um, and started making different dishes. People got excited about it, started to build momentum until, you know, we've gotten to the place that we are at now and still, of course, a baby in its startup phases, um, but have been able to kind of just prove the concept in certain ways. And um, people have been excited about it because, you know, it's rarely that you find someone who doesn't love plantains. And so it's just been an incredible journey thus far. Yes, I love it. And I like how you have your background in anthropology and African-American studies, and you found a way to marry that with your love of cooking and, you know, mm -hmm. just exploring how, how food relates to culture. That's super interesting. Yeah. Thank so, you. yeah. So, I mean, when, when you started your business, Kelawele, did you, I mean, I guess you haven't been classically trained for cooking, you know? 
right? Absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah. So what's that been like having a business, you know, a food-based business and, you know, not necessarily having that professional background? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a learning curve. And I think for me, my creative process, it's gotten quicker, but especially when I was just first starting, it was like, okay, doing a lot of research and development. It's like, okay, I have a concept. I have an idea but how can I really bring it together Um, and really kind of leveraging the resources that are just available online or in books, you know, there's incredible chefs that have been in the game for so long that are trained and just have like the kind of fundamental baseline principles that you can apply when you're, um, you know, making pastries or whatever it is. Um, And so that was really helpful. And I'll say even like the ice cream, for example, that we have our plantain ice cream, which has been our um, kind of staple item that people are really kind of amazed by. That took, you know, the better part of a year to really get right and refine. And a lot of time, and especially when you're operating in the vegan space, um, the imperative is to make the food taste as if it's not vegan, which mm-hmm. is to say that when people don't know it's vegan, that's when you've like done something good with it. And so it's really hard, especially with ice cream because vegan ice creams, the the prevailing issue is usually around texture and creaminess because you're missing the kind of milk fat that you would have in the cream base. And so really working to understand the food science of it all and leveraging those resources, getting food scientists to help me understand how to, you know, create products um, without that kind of training um, has been invaluable and definitely a necessity to, you know, build a startup and food. Yes. So you have the Kayla Wiley, you have the plantain ice cream. Is it mainly like dessert based uh, plantain dishes that you make? Yeah. So our sweet spot is definitely our sweets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we leave it the ice cream. We have a number of um, other products that specifically we wholesale distribute to some of our cafe partners um, here in the city, which include our brownies and our cookies. Um, And then we have our e-commerce sales, which offers those baked goods in addition to a dry mix, uh, which is our brownie mix, um, a gluten-free version of the brownies. Um, And so, yes, it's like definitely the sweets and you know, for me, when I think about trajectory for the business, definitely doubling down on the sweets and moving in that direction and leading with the ice cream. Um, but I'll say in the past, and people have some familiarity with some of our savory items because um, I had a temporary pop-up shop at Decal Market Hall for several months uh, that we just closed in January. And so that was a kind of full range from plantain smoothies, appetizers, entrees, and then of course our sweets as well. Wow. So since you had the pop-up shop, um, what did you learn from that? Like, did you enjoy it? Is it something that you'd want to do again, or are you going to focus more on like packaged foods? Yeah. So, so many learnings (laughs) from that experience, (laughs) because again, it's like, I'm not a restaurateur, um, you know, very, of learning very rapidly and then figure in a global pandemic into that. Um, And how do you manage, you know, 
driving revenue in a space. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Decal Market Hall, but in a space where you're competing for customers because there's, you know, 20 other food vendors, you know, inches away from you. And so how do you distinguish yourself? But then also how do you leverage the traffic that is in that space, just given the dynamics that we are all living under right now. And so very challenging from the ad external perspective, but then internally of like, how do you manage a team and get people to really rally behind an idea that is very unique and specific to me and its conception, um, but for it to be something that other people can be really passionate about and commit their time to and their labor. And so, yeah, just a lot of learning from like the operational aspect of it too. What I do again, I think, you know, never say never. I mean, doing a, or having a brick and mortar in a pandemic is really tough. And so maybe if it was a different time, I'd reconsider. Um, but, you know, I think for me, having that opportunity actually came out of the pandemic. Um, and so definitely served its purpose in terms of just momentum and press and all of that. But the goal has always been around consumer packaged goods and being able to have that kind of scalability and velocity and access by being in multiple places um, rather than having, you know, one location, which is always great, I think, in a flagship marketing kind of way, but really hard to ramp that up and scale quickly, especially as a solo founder. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, having more options as far as, you know, like packaged foods and snacks goes is always good because it's, it's yeah. difficult to find good, healthy snacks, you know, that are mm -hmm. different. It's not just, you know, like your potato chips and stuff. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, mm -hmm. I can see like a huge market for it, Kayla Whaling. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So my next question is revolved around how plantain-based food plays into sustainability. Is that something that you consider as you're, um, you know, growing your business? Oh, a hundred percent. And I think that's something that I'm excited to dig more into now. I've always understood plantains to be an incredible African diasporic superfood that is sustainable, but also in kind of my bigger vision to really root the business to its roots in Ghana. Something that I'm really excited about and getting started with in the next month is to build a plantain farm in Ghana, actually. And so, wow. yeah, I'm super, <laughs> super excited about that. I'm actually going to be going to Ghana at the end of March to um, start and get going now that we've acquired the property to do so. And so I love to think about these things in terms of full circle supply chain sustainability and what we can do. And of course, it's all so early in the startup phase, but if I can plant those seeds now, pun intended, Literally. <laughs> you know, to um, really build a business that really figures and implements sustainability into all aspects and really thinking and leading with people and the people that drive these uh, business lines um, is really important to me. And so I'm excited about being more intentional about that as well. Yes, that's amazing. A whole Thank you. farm. Yes, right. I'm gonna be a whole plantain farmer. <laughs> wow, that is so cool. I can't wait to see how that grows and yes. just like following that whole process. That's so exciting. 
Thank you. Thank you. So more to come on that. Really exciting. Yes. Yes. So um, speaking of ventures that you have going on, I saw on Instagram that you were going on a plantain road trip Mm -hmm. this month. So tell me about Mm -hmm. that. Oh, it was so fun. And so it was really just kind of a way for me to have a vacation and just like take a massive breath after closing the shop um, in January. And I thought, oh, it's great. I can take, I call my Prius plantain the Prius. <laughs> I took my Prius down the East Coast. We hit Baltimore, DC, Charlotte, and Atlanta. And I just wanted to find all of like the delicious plantain eats in all of those locations. And, you know, coinciding with Black History Month, of course, I was really excited about finding Black-owned businesses across the diaspora that, you know, resonated with me. They were doing really cool things as a way to kind of spotlight their work um, and just always looking for inspiration. I think that's also so much of what I spend time doing. It's like, especially when it's like you're working so hard, sometimes you just have to take a step back and like admire and appreciate what other folks are doing, learn from other folks. Um, And so it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I will say the best plantains that I had on the trip were in Atlanta. Yes. Uh, Shout out. (laughs) Shout out to Ike's um, Bar and Grill in Atlanta. He's got some delicious plantains. Scott Kellawelly on the menu. Um, It's a Ghanaian um, owned business. But what's cool is that they've got Nigerian and Ghanaian dishes. And of course they have, you know, between the two countries, you've got the whole jollof war, right? And Mm -hmm. what's cool is they have Nigerian jollof and Ghanaian jollof on the menu. So you can settle the score. Um, (laughs) But just, it was just a lot of fun, a lot of fun and just a way for me to kind of get out and but still be doing something that's relevant and kind of enriching uh, me and by extension, the business. Yes. I was going to ask where was the best place? Cause I'm in Atlanta. So I'm taking notes. Oh, shoot. Wow. Yes. Yes. And I'll definitely I'll go. Say, yeah. I'll say I also had some really good plantains at, um, Pont city market mm-hmm. at L super pan. They're actually the only vendor that has plantains that I'm aware of. Cause I yeah. scoured the entire place. Um, <laughs> But they've got some really good mofongo. Uh, the Maduros are on point. So are the Chistones. I had all of them. Don't judge me. Um, <laughs> it was all really good. I'll, I'll have to give you a list. I had, yeah, it was, Please. it was pretty impressive. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. So when you have your plantain farm, are you just going to be supplying plantains for your, for yourself? Or are you interested in helping other people too? Absolutely on the ladder of that. So the mm-hmm. aim is to, it'll be both, but specifically I envision it to be B2B business. And so to the extent that we can grow and then supply it to um, folks who have businesses as kind of um, plantain sellers within the markets, the local markets, especially in the city center in Accra. Um, but then also how we can sell to perhaps more corporate facing organizations that are wanting them for supermarkets and whatnot. Um, another uh, um, real estate project that I have underway is a, and this one's going to take some more time to get up and running, but um, a Kelawelli resort, which is in Prom Prom, which I'd say it's about an hour away from Accra. And so 
the aim is to have, of course, the plantain farm really fueling the ingredients that are used for the cafe that'll be on site at that resort. Um, and so, like I said, it's, it's going to be a bit of both, but the lion's share will definitely be through the B2B business. Yes. Oh my gosh. A resort girl. Yes. Yes. You know, I'm like, I got to get back to Ghana, like all roads yeah. lead back home. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so amazing. Thank I'm, you. I'm so Thank excited you. for you. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. You have so many big plans. And I know that they are just going to be so successful. And I look forward to supporting you throughout your journey and, you know, and introducing more people to you and Kayla Wele, because like you are just doing something so amazing. Thank you. That means so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. So tell us what does being a sustainable brown or black girl mean to you? Oh man, it is it just, it really informs the perspective that I take to entrepreneurship in its entirety. I think it's, it's a 360 view on how I do everything that I do. You know, I think that for me, I've always said that food is not just food, it's social, it's political, it's economic. And so I think when you're tapping into that, not only are you producing, um, something worthwhile in my and how I think about it, but then also tapping into and recognizing the responsibility that I believe I have to community. And, um, you know, we create value as entrepreneurs, but you also want to retain that value in the communities that produce the culture to begin with. And so the sustainability aspect, when I think about Kalabali's long-term goals, it's like, how do I make sure that the beneficiaries of this cultural production resides with those who are producing it. Um, and then also, I think as a black woman, it's again, how do I make sure that I am propping up, supporting, really empowering those who look like me and those who you know, planted these seeds in me. Kelowale, yes, it's like I created it, but it was long rooted in my mother, my grandmother, my family, everyone who has put all of this into me, all of these ideas that have manifested in this way as I've been able to do them. And so I think there's just a lot of responsibility, which is a privilege, you know, for sure. And so that is always where I lead and how I think about intentionality and being thoughtful in business and building a business that way. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I, you know, it's always a 360 view of how to do business from that perspective. Yes. Perfect. I love it. Yes. It makes total sense. So good. Thank, good. thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story with us and please go follow Kayla Wele on Instagram, go to her website, keep up with everything that she's up to. All of the links will be in the show notes or the description box. And yes, thank you so much, Rachel. It's such a pleasure having you on the of show. Of course, of course. Thank you so much for the opportunity. If you want to keep the conversation going, follow us at Sustainable Brown Girl on Instagram and Facebook. Check out the website at sustainablebrowngirl.com and send any questions, comments, or topic ideas to podcast at sustainablebrowngirl.com. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about your favorite episode. 
donate to Patreon if you can, and be sure to watch the full video interview on YouTube. Until next time, let's continue to make better choices for the health of our bodies and the planet. Thanks for listening.